KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. I'm Kristen Johansson. I cover crime and courts for KYW, and this is the second part of a series for KYW In-Depth on, specifically, gun violence, especially during the pandemic in Philadelphia. Now, last episode, I spoke with Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw about her crime plan. She's brand new to the city, has only been here five months, but she's outlined how she wants to handle uh, the continued rise in shootings and homicides. But she is only one piece of the puzzle when it comes to law enforcement. This episode, I'm talking to District Attorney Larry Krasner. He's the one who sets the tone for how the city handles crime. He's the top law enforcer. Last month, Krasner announced this new initiative where prosecutors or assistant district attorneys who are the ones that actually are in court work alongside police officers in six different divisions throughout the city. They determine crime patterns and work with the officers in determining those crime patterns. They also look for repeat offenders, connect with the community and with neighbors among kind of dealing with other legal issues like search warrants. All to bolster, Krasner says, charges and also a fair prosecution. And he says it's a concept he pulled from another city facing a spike in crime. The inception of this had more to do with watching what seemed to be working in Chicago. I have a, uh, a friendly relationship with Kim Fox in Chicago, and they experienced a very significant drop of about 20% or so in homicides, non-fatal shootings over a couple of years through various different measures. But one of the measures involved in Chicago putting assistant district attorneys or assistant prosecutors in police districts where there were a lot of shootings. So as soon as Commissioner Outlaw came to town, I initiated this conversation with her about whether she'd be willing to do that. You know, a couple things have happened since she came to town, like the pandemic and second grade depression and a lot of unrest. But she expressed her willingness to do it, her interest in doing it, and actually invited us to do it on a more sweeping basis than happened originally in Chicago. We went citywide with it almost immediately, and we were also invited to participate in investigating shootings, which is not something traditionally done in Philly. DAs assist in investigating homicides, but not shootings ordinarily. So uh, that's really where it came from, the process of walking around and meeting a lot of these captains was information gathering, relationship building, so that we had a better idea of what we needed and the idea of what we were about. And it certainly, I think, helped us to get to the point where the commissioner was ready to do it. But the the issue uh, really began with looking at something that seemed to have helped in a different jurisdiction. So take me through the process of kind of how this works. So the way this is supposed to work, and we're, we're a good part of the way there, is they're supposed to report to the police division where they are assigned. They're supposed to spend a good part of the day there. Because they don't have access in the police divisions right now to all of the different databases they need, currently they're spending a fair amount of time back at the office. I'd say it's a split between time in the divisions and, and time back at the office. They are there to do enforcement. They are also there to do community building which uh, is oriented towards prevention, rebuilding trust, being able to get witnesses to come forward, uh, you know, things along those lines. That's exactly what was done in Chicago as well. There was a fair amount of time spent in the community trying to rebuild trust with the community so we could get witnesses and information so that we, we could go in more constructive directions. And that seems to have been important. Just to give you concrete examples of how this is supposed to go, you have a police officer who is trying to figure out, can I search this car on the street right now? I know the people in it. They seem to be associated with, you know, the Brickyard Mafia or whatever. Do I really need a warrant? 
bring, they get an answer right then. Yeah, you really need a warrant or no, you don't. And then they can make that decision without risking having whatever evidence they would find later suppressed because they made a bad choice. Different example, police are working on a search warrant for a house. They're not sure if it's a good draft. They give it to the assistant prosecutor who's there, who looks it over, says, looks pretty good to me, send it downtown for final approval. You know, you have that kind of a collaborative working relationship. Meanwhile, officers on the street are able to talk uh, about what they're seeing in real time on a day-by-day basis with some of the people who are driving violent crime. Uh, And that can help the DA's office to know what to do in terms of bail, to keep a database that would inform us about individuals who are clearly involved in violent activity to make us better in court at arguing what we need to argue in order to get an appropriately high bail in that case, that sort of thing. So it's that, but it's also going into the community and having members of the community come forward to say things to a prosecutor that they're not willing to say to a police officer. That's one of the things they experienced in Chicago was, unfortunately, sometimes there's a little more trust, uh, especially if you have a certain kind of prosecutor, than there is for some of the officers. That's not a criticism of the PPD. It's just an indication about how deep that, deep, deep that rift is and the extent to which trust needs to be rebuilt in order for the entire system to function properly. Is there any, I want to say, foreshadowing that they can do or that they are doing in when they're in the divisions? And I say foreshadowing, meaning they're seeing that there's a rift between this group and that group. And can they kind of see what's, hap- what's happening, what's coming, and maybe alert the police? Is that kind of how you would maybe stop crime before it happens? Well, I think there are a lot of different players who could work together when you have retaliatory violence going on. You know, this is a this is a good time to try to get some kind of interruption of the violence in different ways by addressing the trauma of the victims, by being careful what you do about enforcement, by getting, you know, credible messengers into the community. Maybe people who at one point were involved in gun violence or drugs and have done their time and want things to go a better direction, get them out and try to find a way to squash the beef. Because, you know, there are ways to squash a beef other than shooting each other. And that has been effective in some places at some time. But um, all of that is based upon understanding what's going on, whether it's the police or it's the police together with the DA's office who understand what's going on. It's all based upon that. And so a lot of our efforts here even before we started this collaboration of taking our homicide unit, combining it with our shooting unit, our efforts now to have people in the field and in the police divisions who are supported by a whole group of people within the DA's office who are now becoming part of an intelligence unit here. All of that is directed uh, at assisting our, our different partners and also at helping us be better at what we do. So as I was interviewing the commissioner, Commissioner Outlaw, on her crime plan, I asked her why she thinks crime is spiking in Philadelphia. And she and the DA do agree it's around the country. It's not just here in Philadelphia. The pandemic has really hurt people. It's putting some people in really desperate situations. And one thing that happened really more towards the start of the stay-at-home orders when that all happened in Pennsylvania was they began to pull nonviolent offenders out of prison. So Krasner and the Defenders Association, they joined up, had meetings with the courts, with the judges, I should say, uh, to go over who kind of should be let out early and who should stay in. Obviously, they had concerns that it was a public health crisis and here they had group living, uh, which obviously happens in the prison. So uh, this happened in other jurisdictions as well. It wasn't just here in Philadelphia um, and in other states, of course. But one piece I asked the commissioner about is whether the early release of some of these offenders had an impact on the rise in crime. She said it was a piece of it. We have seen 
some folks that have been released for lesser offenses and they come out and commit violent crimes. And we're just, it seems like we're chasing our tail time and time again as it relates to those individuals. But then she also pointed out that there's territory disputes, social media beefs um, that are contributing to the rising crime and specifically to shootings and homicides. And then there's, of course, the stress of the pandemic and poverty and people not having jobs. But then when I asked the DA about those being let out of prison early. I I actually think that narrative is completely false. Uh, I think that we have, I mean, first of all, if you look at some of the modifications in the DA's bail plan from before the pandemic, there was a, an academic study that was done that made it clear that our decision not to pursue cash bail for 20 different non-serious offenses was causing zero increase in crime, much less violent crime, and also was not causing people to fail to go to court. That's not my opinion. That is an academic study that was done. Fast forward to more recent times, this city knows that um, based upon the preliminary results of a, a study by City University of New York professors Vera MacArthur from almost four months ago that this is not true, okay? That study has not been released. That study should be released. These CUNY professors uh, have already done it. But, um, you know, sometimes politics gets in the way of policy. And sometimes it's just convenient to say that, uh, to claim that people being released are to blame for all of this. It's, I mean, there is no question. Purely in the pandemic. And, and by the way, what is that? Is that study pure? Is that study in Philadelphia or in the nation? So the, the study that was done on Bill 1.0, that study was Philadelphia exclusively. The MacArthur study is Philadelphia. So what I hear the commissioner saying, and I think she's been pretty clear about it is that they cannot point to a single factor that, uh, they cannot validate the notion that it's necessarily anything around bail policy. That's the quote I saw. Uh, what they what they can validate is there seem to be a lot of different factors. It's hard to point to anyone that gun violence in Philly has been increasing for several years, not just for a couple of years. What we, we do know this, and you're speaking of the pandemic, so let me try to go directly to your point. We do know that there's been a massive, a massive increase in homicides and in shootings in almost every big city in America during the pandemic. I mean, there's just no question about it. New York Times reported on it very recently. And one of the interesting things about it is it's going the opposite direction from most violent crime. Most violent crime is down at least a little bit during the pandemic. But even when you include under that umbrella shootings and homicides, even though it's still going down, we see this huge spike in shootings and homicides during the pandemic. I just checked today because I knew we were going to have this conversation to see how the Philadelphia Police Department is categorizing the motives, the primary motives behind murders. And um, to my surprise, they are not categorizing this as being a huge spike in drug-related homicides. In fact, what they are showing in their data is at this time last year, the number of drug-related homicides was 52, and this year it's 45. That surprised me, to be honest, because I've always thought that there was uh, a fairly significant connection between the opioid epidemic and a lot of the violence. I think some of the data from other years supported the notion that there was a big increase in drug-related homicides. What is standing out, I mean, domestic homicides, for example, this time in 2019-8, 
this time in 2029. Not a big difference. You would think maybe more than that with everybody quarantined, stuck at home, tremendous financial pressure and, um, and fear. So we're not really seeing that. We are seeing certain categories jumping up, though. Argument as a motive for homicide, we've seen it go from 62 last year to 84 this year, which is a substantial increase. And we also see retaliation has gone from 13 last year to 18 this year. We're seeing undetermined, meaning homicide detectives just don't know, go from six last year to 34 this year, right? So I do think there's a chance that buried within undetermined, within retaliation, within argument, all these increasing categories, there is drug-related activity. Um, But I also think we should be realistic, which is that our opioid epidemic here is worse in many ways than some other cities. So what is it all across the country that is affecting so many cities? And that seems to at least correlate with this huge increase in shootings and homicides. Well, you have tremendous economic stress. You have the second great depression. Uh, The number, the percent of people unemployed who make less than $40,000 is about 40%. That is an incredibly high rate of unemployment, much higher than the national rate of unemployment. You have um, the disappearance to a large extent of, you know, low-paid summer jobs, but the kind of jobs that a lot of teenagers or young adults might have otherwise done. Uh, You have a real decline, frankly, in almost anything to do outside of the house. And so I think a lot of what you're seeing here is deep. It is economic. It is systemic. It relates to a lot of the extremely difficult times we're dealing with. And I'd be lying if I said I have more of an answer than that. You know, I mean, I've had conversations with police that I thought were, were edifying. Uh, we can all sit here as people interested in crime, and we can talk about how the kind of folks who are engaging in street-level drug sales, who don't think they're going to live to age 30, who are involved in gun crimes back and forth, are exactly the kind of people who are not afraid of a virus. So they're exactly the ones who will go out. And when they go out, there are no witnesses, right? Because all the people who aren't willing to take those kinds of risks are at home being safer. I'm sure that there's some aspect of that. But when you see city after city after city with this tremendous increase in homicide shootings, essentially in gun violence, and simultaneously a decline in crime and even a decline overall in violent crime, it's obviously not a single city's problem. It's obviously a much more sweeping and national problem. And we all know what's happening nationally is... uh, It has a lot to do with the economy. It has a lot to do with the pandemic. It has a lot to do with other stress going on in society. And so for people who feel very hopeless, and I'm talking about people all over the city, in Center City, in North Philly, all over, um, and I asked the commissioner the same question, (laughs) they feel like, you know, there's no hope with the pandemic. There's no hope with all these shootings. A six-year-old's killed and a 15-year-old's killed. What would kind of be your message to them for how they could maybe help or how they can improve our city. A lot of people I talk to just feel very hopeless about everything. They don't know what to do about gun violence. They don't know what to do about the pandemic. So I think it is very important for people to remember this is an election year, and it's an election year when voting, running for office, getting signatures, all of that, all those things are going to be a real challenge. It's an election year that comes after another presidential election year when there was election interference. I think it's pretty obvious uh, when there's a real effort to disenfranchise people. It's extremely important that we have a government that is willing to look at new 
prevention-oriented creative solutions to gun violence. It's extremely important. We have a government that's willing to talk about a $20 minimum wage um, and is willing to talk about universal health care and is willing to talk about the kind of basics that when societies guarantee them tend to reflect much lower crime. And that really is true. I mean, you can point to countries where they have universal health care and they have an acceptable minimal standard of living. The level of homicide is one-tenth or one-ninth what we have in the United States. The level of incarceration is also one-tenth or one-ninth what we have in the United States. No, it's not. It's not the United States. They're not, most countries are not as awash in guns. They're not as awash in drugs because they have a government that won't let big pharma pump the entire country with opioid pills like happens in the U.S. But that doesn't change the fact that there is something to be learned there. People should not give up on the power of their vote, the power of their participation, the reality that they can make their government do what they want and they need. We are in a city where there has been an increase in the police budget of something like $120 million over the last several years that does not correspond to a reduction in crime. That is a fact. Well, that's a poor investment. And it may very well be that that $120 million, and maybe some more, needs to go into things that we know actually prevent crime and actually prevent hopelessness. And that would be superior education. That would be good summer programs. That would be good investment in community-based organizations that have a proven track record in Los Angeles and in other places of reducing crime, you know? I mean, let me just give you an example of how we could go a a different and creative direction. We basically try to chase kids out of our parks. We have little boxes that are attached to recreational facility buildings that make screechy noises and chase young people out of parks. That's what we do. What do they do in LA? They open the parks and they schedule events and they invest in having events that will bring a lot of people out. It's part of what they call the GRID program out there, G-R-Y-D. They have had tremendous success over 20 years by investing in community-based organizations and making communities livable. Tremendous success in reducing violence in that community. There are just better ways to go. But I think above all else, what people need to do is understand that they have the power to make their government go in the right right direction and do what it is that they have written on a sign and held up in the the air as they walk in a march. They have the ability to do that this year more than almost any other year, and they better protect it because with the pandemic, the opportunity to steal their vote is great. What can they do locally? I mean, they can involve themselves as volunteers in rec centers uh, through their houses of worship. They can get young people out so they have something better to do, whether it's playing basketball or it's um, doing music. They have something better to do, even if they cannot get a job, than go to the corner and get that job, which is selling drugs. And there's a ton of people in the city who will do that because they care that much. That's real. And so what are some of the community stakeholders you guys have been working with through like some crime prevention for the summer? Is there any? You know, we are constantly engaging through our community engagement program, which is run primarily by Lamar Stewart. And Lamar is not only a Philadelphia police officer, he's also a pastor. But we are constantly engaging with community groups um, and our ADAs who are out in the field are also engaging in community with community groups and community buildings building uh, around these issues. It's, I mean, you know, it's, there are many nights a week and many days when if we're not Zooming, we're actually out in the community meeting with community members to talk through the issues that they see. And I'll tell you, the issues that they see reflect a lot of different viewpoints. Some of them are just as eager to talk about what's going to happen 
with gun violence, drug activity, you know, very serious noise complaints. They keep them up all night as they are in wanting to talk about making sure innocent people don't sit in jail, not having racist policing. I hear these things one question after another, almost alternating in community groups all the time. So, um, you know, there is a real reconciliation that needs to happen between prosecutors offices and police departments that have done things the wrong way for a long time and the communities they're supposed to serve. Uh, And, you know, we have our monthly one-stop job and resource hub, which is being renewed again this month after having been shut down due to the pandemic. We're out there and we will continue to be out there. I'm even, I, you know, I can go on and on, but it's, it's a process and we engage in it every day. Are there any um, other kind of gun violence prevention programs that are on the horizon for you in your office? Well, there's, I mean, just to tick them off, there are several underway right now. We have been involved with the gun violence intervention efforts that the city is now considering and reconsidering, actually. We've been involved with that from the beginning. We remain involved with that. We have our collaboration going, as you know, with the police department, and we're out there um, with them. We do a lot of work with organizations like the Center for Carceral Studies. We work all the time on data. We work with criminologists who are studying gun violence. We have uh, a very limited, but we do have a limited diversionary program, which has shown success in terms of steering people away away from crime instead of towards it. And we have the Gun Violence Task Force, which has more funding than it used to, which is a collaboration with the Attorney General's office in which we specialize in certain types of gun prosecutions. So... um, I mean, those are some of the things that we're doing, but we are constantly in talks with community about this. We're, we're about to file papers in federal court, actually, asking for over a million dollars in leftover funds from the forfeiture lawsuits to be returned to the communities from which it was taken, to be returned to the zip codes from which it was taken for programming at um, – rec centers, high schools, community centers, in those communities, a good chunk of it's going to go to Kensington so that there are programs for youth, whether it's, uh, you know, new parenting program or a musical program or it's a GED program or it's, you know, tr- more traditional PAL type basketball programs, things like that. We're involved in that. And, you know, to me, that is very directly and very specifically gun violence prevention because there are so many more guns than there used to be in any You know, any good, honest cop will tell you that. There's so many more guns than there used to be on the street. They're so much cheaper than they used to be, just like there's so much more drugs and they're so much cheaper than they used to be that it is clear that our traditional approaches are not working. And we have to go much more in a public health and prevention direction if we're going to make any headway. So we'll see how the new initiative works and if some of these community-based ideas and these programs that he's trying to set up, whether or not they work to reduce crime. You know, for the city, it's a really unnerving time in Philadelphia. The last two years, we've seen record-breaking homicides and shootings. Krasner's opponents point to his policies as reasons for this, but he points to easily accessible guns and just an overall feeling of hopelessness within the community, as well as a lack of jobs and opportunity. So we're going to reach out to some other law enforcement agencies to see if we can get their take. That would be the state prosecutor, Josh Shapiro, and then the U.S. attorney, Bill McSwain. But that'll be for another podcast maybe next week. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Kristen Johansson, and we'll have another episode out soon.